Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Man, I ain't touching that code with a 10-foot pole. There's a lot of bad code out there. Even in well-run organizations, there is almost always a chunk of code that nobody wants to touch. However, just because bad code happens everywhere doesn't mean it happens in a vacuum. There's a lot of reasons that bad code is created and continues to exist in even the best organizations. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the things that are almost guaranteed to make a mess out of your code base, as well as how to address them. But before we get started, Will, what have you been finding this week? SQL Server Hierarchy IDs. Oh, fun. Yeah. Okay, so I had to write a spec um, over the last couple of weeks um, for another project, and I'm having to jump in and do some of this work, too, that uses those because we've got an arbitrarily deep deeply nested hierarchy. I mean, it won't be like crazy deep and there won't be a crazy number of nodes. Actually, we really have three hierarchies and they interact. So yeah, um, I, I worked on the spec for an extended period of time. I burned through a bunch of the whiteboard markers that I had. Most of the markers over there are dead now. I actually need to go through and like, you know, find all the dead ones, get rid of them. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really bad. Um, I haven't had a spec like this in a while that, you know, that was that challenging to get figured out and to support all the use cases but you ever had that thing where you like you really get into code or you get into something technical and you're just heads down for a while and then like you get away from it and everything looks weird yes you know what i mean like it's not weird but you're just kind of there's like this this buffer issue where you have to like readjust to not being in that mind space yeah so it um it's been pretty tough i've really really enjoyed it <laughs> um, <laughs> I would too, yeah yeah because no you know like anytime somebody came in and wanted to interrupt me i'm like hey can you help me with and they just look and they go away <laughs> nice yeah how about you well i found a house for rent uh, it's about an hour out of town but since i ride the bus and only have to go in a couple of days a week it shouldn't be that bad I like that I can rent it for a year and decide if I like living down there. Houses are a lot cheaper once you get a little outside of town. So it's going to be nice. I'm going to be able to save up some more money. Uh, it's bigger, so I'm not going to feel as cramped. And it's got a yard so my dog can run and play. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Looking forward to it. I'll be moving in December. So that'll be, be fun. I'm sure I'll be talking more about that process as it goes along. My sister is coming down. Actually, she's already here. I think, yeah, she's over at my mom's place now. She, uh, My aunt picked her up, and she was staying with my aunt till my mom got off work. But um, actually, it's going to be both of them. Uh, we'll be in town this weekend. But we're not telling my youngest sister that the other one's coming because it's a birthday surprise. Yeah, but by the time this comes out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, since we're talking about code quality, I've got something quality-related for IOTs. This is an article called Quality Assurance for Internet of Things. It's by Sudhir Mohan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. 
who has over 14 years experience in wireless tech and mobility. The article starts by defining IoT and quality assurance. It then talks about the importance of QA in an IoT system. Uh, once you're convinced about the importance of assuring quality in IoT, it goes into a list of best practices. It's actually pretty interesting and something I think we might even be able to turn into an episode. Hmm. Be, be a really interesting IoT-focused episode. Kind of fun. So I've got a link to that in the show notes. You guys can check it out. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed a tweet from My Year of Code. It says, at Complete Dev Pod, you mentioned you might have an episode on boot camps in the future. I, I'll be happy to hear it whenever that day comes. Keep up the good work. And yes, we absolutely do want to have an episode on boot camps. In fact, we know who we're going to try to bring in for that discussion. Right. Right now, we are just trying to... Um broach the topic with them and schedule a time for it to and, actually happen and actually uh like catch them at their job <laughs> <That's> <laughs> every time too. i've been over there i haven't been able to catch him sorry yeah i, I haven't seen him in a while either so yeah. yeah no that's that's cool send us a dm with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you guys if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle leave us a review on itunes or comment on the website or any of our social media we post all of our episodes to twitter facebook google plus and linkedin we're also on instagram and tumblr check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer listener questions. Or you can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. We've all been there. Small issues in a code base continue to pile up until someone suggests a complete rewrite to fix it all. While bits don't rot, code bases absolutely do. In addition to that, sometimes management decisions can result in bad code being written or even cause good code to be adjusted in ways that cause further problems. This can be further compounded by developer mistakes and personality quirks that increase the amount of bad code in the system. Well, you don't want to go around blaming people for turning your code base into an awful mess. Usually. You do want to be aware of the factors that lead to a sloppy hard to maintain and disorganized code base so that you can make some headway on actually fixing it. This episode comes largely from Will's experience cleaning up brownfield applications. Yeah, and some of the apps I've cleaned up really put the brown in brownfield too. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and it's interesting that we are talking about this because we are in the process of developing coding standards yeah. for our work, and this is one of the main motivators for it. Yes, because you don't want to be here. And we're going to start off by talking about developer factors, then discuss management and financial factors that lead to busted, nasty code over time. So first off, talking about developer factors is a factor that we discuss quite a bit on here, and that is resume-driven development. Yes. Uh, developers will sometimes pick a technology that isn't appropriate for the task at hand because they want to learn it and then try to hammer it into something useful. Now, of course... People will say this about Electron, um, <laughs> and that's actually starting to look like it's useful. But you know, early on, it you know, using Node for desktop apps was a little weird. Now, developers tend to do this as they're looking for other job opportunities. So they tend to leave a mess behind, and no one understands it, and they're not there anymore. Those in this headspace also tend to not document things appropriately since that doesn't do anything for their resume and they're not planning on staying around and having to maintain it right. down the line. So they'll do all kinds of just crazy hacks and again, hammering something to make it do what it doesn't do. 
just so they can get the bullet point on their resume. Now, there are a few places in my code where I have a to-do that says, refactor this hacky, you know. Yeah. Uh, I've got a little ASCII dragon that I put in comments sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> There'd be dragons here. It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there are times that you do, like, not resume-driven development, but that you do have to put in some, like, hacky stuff there. Yeah, and that's not got this. Constraints. Yeah, that's not what this is. This is more like, oh, I'm, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to learn this other thing so I get a higher pay rate when I go. Mm-hmm. The other thing that tends to happen here is you uh, tend to use a lot of bleeding edge technology when when you're doing resume driven development. And that tech tends to change rapidly, which may mean that anybody coming in has to learn the old way of doing it. Plus, however, you busted it when you were trying to make it work and they have to learn the new way of doing it so they can port it to something that's actually maintainable. Now, this is this is interesting. I had a director who really liked to say that um Working for the government, we were on the cutting edge of technology. Yeah. Not at the bleeding edge, right. but the cutting edge. Yeah. So you make it bleed. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but the, the idea- <laughs> that metaphor has always bothered me. <laughs> yeah. The, the idea was we, we might not be all the way at like the new thing coming out this month, but we were doing stuff that came out within the last five years. And obviously, Angular JS to Angular 2 was a big jump. We're still building a few things in AngularJS, even though all of our newer stuff, we've moved forward. Yeah. And, you know, that that can happen even when you're not doing resume-driven development, even when the, the Yeah, it's a natural progression. Or, yeah. But you don't make it worse by going, okay, well, I don't want to use AngularJS. I want to use AngularJS version 0.1 alpha. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, oh, this just came out. Let's use it. Let's put it in production. Yeah, you know, that that's horrible when you get on the receiving end of that because mm-hmm. it, you know you frequently can't even find docs on how the thing worked because the developers that were writing it didn't write docs either. So there's several ways to fix this. Regular code reviews are the best way. This is how you catch them in the act, and it it's really interesting. I attended a talk on code reviews at DevSpace and sort of how to make them not suck. Yeah. It was a really interesting talk. I'd like to get the guy on um, uh, to talk to us about it because it the the idea was, all right, here's why people don't like them and here's how to do it right. Yeah. Like if everybody comes out of there and they feel like they learned something that makes them more efficient and makes things easier, mm-hmm. then that's a win. If they feel like they're beaten down, it's not. Um, but th- the reason you want to use the code reviews to catch this is, you know, again, that catches it early. It's before it's metastasized and it's all through the code base because they've been doing that for six months and nobody looks at it. It also discourages that behavior because they know they're going to get caught. Mm -hmm. You do have to make sure that coding standards are well established as well and that any decision to bring in new technology is vetted by the technical team. I went through this at work. That's why I was talking about the hierarchy ID thing. Um, I had to prove like, you know, how the how the field is stored, how it's indexed, how we're going to query it, how we're going to I mean, just. All this stuff, because it was a data type that we've never used. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it turns out, I don't know that I know any other .NET developers that have had to do much with it, you know, because it's SQL only. And and so, yeah, I was just like trying to figure out, you know, what the index performance was going to be and just all this other stuff that I had to, I mean, I got raked over the coals on that. And bear in mind, I'm an architect because that's, you know, you bring in new tech, they're going to do that to you. I I had that same thing when I brought in WebSockets and when I brought in uh, Knockout JS and Mm -hmm. just a whole bunch of stuff like that. I've got a bit of a reputation at work for, I don't want to say being a contrarian, but being the one that questions every little thing. You have to. Yeah, we've been re, we're rebuilding a lot of very old applications. And so 
we're using newer technology and we're bringing in things that you know people haven't used and stuff like that. And so I'm you know I'm the one that's questioning our architect and going, all right, well, how is this going to affect this? How is it going to affect that? You know, why are we doing it this way? Those types of questions. Yep. But the benefit of that is is when I sign off on something or when I'm like championing something, everyone knows that I vetted it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go, all right, this is a good idea if I haven't thoroughly looked at every implication. So there's there's goods and bads to that reputation, but yeah. The next one that is a developer factor that causes problems is the expert beginner. This is also something we talk about a lot on this show. Developers get really comfortable and they tend to stay that way until something shakes up their world. Frequently, this means that they will resist newer technology, even if that does make sense. Now, this is the opposite end of the same spectrum as the resume-driven development. Yeah, this resistance may cause them to copy existing code and modify it to suit rather than abstracting things cleanly. Like That's the other behavior that happens. Hey, I've got something that works. I've got an approach that works, and I used it over here. Let me just move that over and change the variable names. And it really, it rots your code base in a big hurry. They also have a tendency to use far more code than is required to accomplish a task. As languages and platforms evolve, uh, they go towards more terse usage yeah. over time. So like if you are, um, if you're doing .NET, you're doing like C Sharp, um, what is it, on 7 or 8 now? Yeah, we're not there yet at work. Um, <laughs> but I I'll give you an example. Let's say you, are, you have to go through a set of items in a collection and you have to get a property that's you know several levels down in the hierarchy. Like back in the day, you would do a for each, and you go if the outer thing isn't null, then if the next thing isn't null, then you know you like you nest it in. But you know you've got the uh, what is it the Elvis operator now the the question dot mm -hmm. in C sharp seven where you, it basically does the null propagation, and you've also got link, and so you can do that one line of code versus like fifty. Yeah, but a developer that is a expert beginner that learned. C sharp in say 2002 and maybe they upgraded and you know they got some stuff around up to 2005 but they stopped they're going to be writing this a long way and you're going to be debugging it that way yeah now sometimes it's helpful to break that out oh yeah debugging and then put it back but i've had several conversations with different developers at varying levels about how terse your code should be yeah. And that's um honestly we could do an episode on just that because it's a it's kind of a, a golden zone there. It's yeah, too it terse is. and it's hard to to read. Yeah, I mean that, okay, so this is the uh, the optimization problem that you always have with anything, right? Mm -hmm. A lightweight horse runs faster. Half a horse is dead. <laughs> that's the that's the optimization problem. The thing with expert beginners is they tend to coast in other ways and develop problems around their work ethic in some cases. This is kind of a double whammy when they eventually get fired. Yeah, because you you know, I've I've been in situations where a developer or other technical person was let go and then somebody has to take over their work and they find out that there was this process they were doing that was taking like five or six hours a pop every single time they had to do it. And it was like a regular thing. And the guy, you know, the guy that took over was like, I'm not doing that. I'm writing a script. And the script can run in a single, like, double click batch file. And it does the five or six hours worth of work. And the script was only like a page of batch code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you get those kind of things happening because they just, they do the same thing and they're, they're comfortable. Even if it's not the most efficient, even if, you know, whatever, like it's not going to get better. Because the person is looking at it going, look, I'm paid to do this thing, not I'm paid to make this better. Yeah. And that's what you see with expert beginners. They used to make fun of me when I was doing more UI code because I had written a couple of scripts 
to, you know, run grunt, run HTTP server. And just like, so I could just type in the the batch file and just have it run. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way I do things. Um, yeah. So let's talk about how to fix this. Again, code reviews, great way to do this. Developers who haven't rested on their laurels should be teaching the expert beginners better ways of doing stuff. Now, the way you do that is you go, hey, you're you're putting a lot more effort into this than you have to. Let me mm-hmm. show you an easier way to do this. Yeah. If your organization doesn't have some practices around training developers, then that really needs to be encouraged. Yeah. And that's something we've got to work on uh, where I work is getting that together. And I think that's one of my things I'm supposed to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I'm not buried, which hasn't happened yet. Like uh, some of the, the formal training that we have, it's, it's about like academics yeah. training it's yeah. a little bit behind the m- more modern stuff. They, they do a decent job, but it still takes time to develop material for it. We recently got them to start considering attending conferences as training. Yeah. So we don't actually have to take time off to go to better our skills. Yeah, that's that's good. While Beej and I both have the position that it's crazy not to be training some on your own time, just so you can control your career, there's a lot of people that don't do that. It's reasonable for management to find ways to have on-the-clock training so that developers don't get a stale set of skills. I, I know that you want developers to train on their own time. Realistically, you need to make your team do it on the clock as well. Because there's really two constraints there. There's what the developer's future is and there's what the team's future is. And the manager needs to be taking care of the team. The developer needs to be taking care of themselves. Going back to the conferences thing, at DevSpace and Music City Tech, we met groups that all came from the same dev shop. Mm-hmm. Where the the company got a group rate on the conference and sent all their developers. Yeah, I actually ran into a developer that was maintaining an app that I wrote 12 years ago. And I asked him, I was like, how's it uh, running? You know, what's what's the code look like now? He goes, man, I hadn't been in there at all. <laughs> like he's in charge of maintaining it. He goes, I, I pulled it down from source control and it's been rock solid and stable. Nice. So like he hadn't had to touch it. That's pretty sweet. That's a wonder. Actually. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that is that is cool. It's probably better he didn't look. Yeah. So speaking of managers, now we're going to talk about the management factors that cause poor code quality. And the first one here kind of blends with the developers, and that is an overwhelmed developer. Yeah, sometimes management puts too much stuff on one or more developers on the team. Um, this is something we struggle with where I work because we've got um, a couple of people that, ha- that have done certain parts of the system that are really difficult. And one of those people is me, and one of them is my boss, you know, the mm-hmm. guy I share an office with. And nobody else can really get in there on those things. And so if anything touches that, it lands on us. But we also have other stuff we have to do. And sometimes that piles up all of a sudden and you're you're looking at going in on Saturday. Yeah, I, I understand that. We've got a lot of older code that we maintain. And even though we have a rotating maintenance team, some of it is like written in VB web forms 15 yeah. years ago before most of us were in development. Yeah. Um, you know, when some of our developers were still in high school. Yeah. Lower. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is stuff like dealing with the way uh, PDF lays out objects yeah. in, the, in the file and understanding all that stuff. Like, I can't do that. I mm-hmm. mean, I could eventually, but yeah. you know, we don't have that. And this is really insidious because the options are either burnout or overwork or cutting corners. And usually you get all that. Eventually, people start cutting corners just so they can have a normal life. Yeah. Um, and even when 
even when you don't come in a lot extra and work extra, you'll see those cutting corners because it's like, all right, I got to go deal with this thing. Yeah. And I've got to get this out of the way and get it into QA so that I don't have to come in this weekend. Right. Uh, the cut corners eventually show back up, but it can be months or years later. The developer may not even be there by then, or their contribution to the problem may be forgotten. Um, and this, I mean, this happens to all of us, right? Like you've pulled code down and looked at it and said, oh, who wrote this crap? And then you see your initials by the commit and you're like, oh, yep, man. That, that's happened to me. Yeah. A couple so, times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but that ends up happening, right? And the thing with the cut corners that's that's really bad is it shows up later and then you have to fix it on top of a workload that's probably not gotten any less. So it, it just snowballs. So let's talk about some ways to fix this. Uh, the first thing is, is management needs to have a realistic idea of what developers are actually working on. In many organizations, it's surprising how often this isn't true. So they think, oh, you're just working on this one project, but you're actually, you know, you've got four other projects because people are coming to you with bugs and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You're, you know, you're managing people or you're having to deal with personnel issues or. Yeah, this is uh, an issue that came to light right when I started working. They had started doing the, the maintenance team because before that, whoever had built the application or had worked on it. That's just who the business people went to and like, hey, they'd send an email directly to them. And it was some training to get people to stop doing that and redirect them through the, the process. Yeah. And we had that same problem uh, with people that would come into our office and, you know, you got headphones on and your head's down working on something and you just, they tap you on the shoulder mm -hmm. and you're, you're just interrupted for something. I mean, I remember sending an email to my boss going, look, before... 11 o'clock in the morning, and bear in mind, I was getting there at 8. Uh, yeah. Before 11 o'clock in the morning, I was interrupted 14 times. And I said, we cannot go faster with the foot on the brake like this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, we've gotten process around that now, and it's better. But, like, if that's not documented, management doesn't know. We had one uh, developer, and she's she moved to another department to take a promotion. But um, she'd been there for maybe 10, 15 years. And the business side knew her really well. So if they had an issue, they just emailed her and she would go in and fix it. And she had the hardest time realizing and like just internalizing, hey, I need to not do this. Yeah. Because it like their old way, the old waterfall way of doing it, that worked. But with the the fast paced, iterative scrum agile process. Yeah. She's making you miss deadlines and everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a real issue. Um, you know, there's the there's the old joke about, you know. Corporate organizations are like trees full of monkeys. The you know the ones at the top look down and all they see is smiling faces, and the ones down below look up and all they see are um, monkey rear ends. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, and not monkey shoulders like we're drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you may have a developer working on a couple of large projects, and they find themselves fixing bugs, mentoring junior developers, going to lots of meetings. There, there's a lot of stuff in your schedule that your manager won't be aware of unless you surface that, and they have to. Dig in and find that if if you don't tell them. So the time adds up. And eventually, especially if the organization isn't very smart about how they assess developer work, that overloaded developer will cut corners just to keep their head above water. Yeah. So they like have you, so much going on that like it's do it the fastest possible way, unmaintainable. And I've I've run into this even even with people that know better. It was just, hey, I've got to put this in. Yeah. And I go back and I look at the code like a few months later and I go, why, why didn't you use 
what was already there. Why did you? Yeah. And they just didn't want to test it. They just wanted something that was there that was done. Yeah. Yeah. You see this all over the place. Uh, you fix this by fostering good communication between management and the developers regarding both workload and priorities. So like my boss actually yesterday, um, you know, we had a meeting of the development team and you know, we went through all the stuff. And then, um, you know, before that, the other architect, myself and the main owner went to lunch and he was like, how are we doing Like as yeah. far as workload? Because that feedback loop has to be maintained. I, I really liked um, the director that we had. Before our current one. Not that I dislike our current one, but he's only been there for a couple of weeks. So I don't know him well enough. Yeah. But the one we had before was really great about, you know, talking to the developers. She had an open door policy where you could come in and sit down and talk to her. And she had been a developer before she got into management. So, like, you could come in and sit and talk to her about things and she understood what you're talking about. Yeah. She may not know the syntax or the, the specific details in the languages we're using, but she understood the concepts and it was, it was really great. Um, our current director, like I said, he's, he's only been there for a couple of weeks, but I've already had a handful of conversations with him just in the hallway where he just stops and, you know, asks how it's going, asks what I'm working on, you know, and things like that. He's had a couple of really good suggestions in some of our, uh, product reviews. Yeah. Whereas like after the business team left, he was like, have you guys thought about doing this? And we're like, that's a good idea. We'll, we'll add it on the, to the backlog, but it's not a priority right now. Now, nothing helps this if the company has unrealistic expectations and refuses to hire more help, yeah. right? Like management can be as aware of things as possible, but you know, if they don't have enough help, there's nothing fixing that. Yeah. So the next possible cause of poor code quality is sales driven management. And this is Almost, if not just as bad as resume-driven development. Yeah. It, well, it's the same kind of thing, right? It's somebody's getting their personal thing at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. Now, some companies have a business model that requires them to constantly be getting more and more sales just to keep the lights on. In other words, they don't have recurring revenue. Right. Usually, that's that's what does it. You, know, you start the month over at zero, guess what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, this typically means that development improvements are put on the back burner just to get a sale. So somebody needs a new feature, but oh, hey, we've got this thing that's leaking memory. The new feature is going to win. This can also mean that salespeople sell things that don't exist yet and development just has to bail them out. They have to make it happen. Yeah. Even if it's not possible, you know, they have to like figure out how to fake it. And you see all kinds of very, (laughs) uh, very, very special things. Uh, This tends to result in a lot of friction between developers and sales, along with the burnout of the development staff. One of, one of my favorite things is talking to sort of the subject matter expert or the the product owners and them wanting something and saying, all right, that's possible, but this is what it's going to cost to build that. This is how difficult what you're asking for is. Yeah. And if I can, I, I really like giving them an alternative saying, all right, this is how difficult this is, but we could do it this way. And it's not exactly what you want, but it accomplishes the same functionality. Right. But a lot of times when it's sales oriented, you know, they come back with specs. Yeah. And the specs are terrible usually too, because it's not a technical person that got it, but you're expected to fit that. And yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty gross what happens. Um, this sort of environment, you'll often be encouraged to cut corners so that a sale can happen while not being allowed to go back and fix the deep structural issues that happen because you cut corners. Mm-hmm. When looking good next quarter is more important than being around in 10 years, you aren't going to be around in 10 years. Yeah. That's just not the way things are anymore. I, I mean, I get that you got to keep your head above water, but 
you'll get organizations that are that are built this way. And, you know, a lot of them, they go for a very long time, but mm-hmm. eventually it piles up enough where you just can't get out from under it. Well, this is why you see a lot more subscription services and recurring revenue type things. Um, even software as a service, platform yeah. as a service, those type of things are so much more popular now than yeah. just straight up selling software because what they've learned is having that just sell the software yeah, it makes you well. It's uh, it's almost like the same effect that you get when there's one high priced crop in a farm area and everybody grows it, mm-hmm. and they always grow that, and eventually you get soil depletion. Yep. And now nobody can grow it. Yep. That's kind of the same sort of thing. So fixing this, this is a business model and a cash flow problem. So unfortunately, developers are seldom in a position to do a lot about it. Yep. However. You can often help by either participating in the sales process in some way or by building frameworks to make common tasks easier. Another thing you can do is spend some time with the salespeople, yeah. get to know them, and then offer to train them and give them just enough knowledge to, and the way I have, have put this at places I was consulting with was, let me give you just enough knowledge so that you can make the sale to their technical salesperson. Right. You know, so that you can get that sale and then they'll want to learn about it. And once they learn about it, they know, oh, that that's not really possible. Yeah. You snuck the the, the knowledge in. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing, too, like as far as frameworks, like we had a lot of clients asking for custom stuff in the software. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's fine. We can do that. But it's like it's in the package. It's for everybody. And so anybody can break stuff with it. And so we we finally made our own job runner. So that we could make custom jobs just for the clients that okay. weren't in the main software. And so we built a framework that made this less painful. Oh, I see that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and that's a pretty common practice. I mean, that's nothing new, but it was just one of those things where somebody one day goes, wait, why are we doing it this way? This hurts. <laughs> so I don't know what Will was thinking when he came up with this one, but the next one is the Chihuahua. Managers. Yeah, I couldn't think of a better term, but <laughs> I love it. I, I when I was reading the outline, I, I saw that and I'm like, oh, I got to look at this. This sounds awesome. Yeah. So like um, I dated a girl a long time ago that had a pet chihuahua and that animal would run and bark. <laughs> and it was like, there's a squirrel over here. Bark. Run to the other end of the place. There's something over here. Bark at that. I mean, just I mean, just back and forth. Yeah. And when you have managers that do this, um, it's essentially because they can't make up their mind. Yeah. And, you know, everything's top priority, which means nothing Nothing. is top priority. This often happens when the manager reports to multiple people or to a single person and customers. You know, if they're customer-facing manager, but they also manage development, like you get weird situations where that happens. The thing is, this results in rapid changes to timelines, scope, and priorities. And I've had this as the... So, one of the really great things about where I work is I get to be part of the change to an agile environment. Right. One of the really stressful things about where I work it's is exactly the same the thing. The exact same thing. And some of the divisions that we work with are really on board with it. They f- they understand what we're doing. Some of them are so used to the old way that it's really hard for them to to get on board or some of them don't like change and so they don't want to change their to the new system even though it's going to make their jobs easier. And so you, you'll get this, uh, and I, I've seen it where it's like you build something and then the very next refinement, you find out what you just built is com- wrong, is wrong, or it's not what they wanted, even though it met exactly what they asked for. Yeah. My favorite is when you have it three quarters of the way built 
And because you didn't have time to do proper source control because it was a fire and they go, oh, just just comment that out for now. Oh, yeah. And then you release it. And then like two years later, oh, let's put that back in. <laughs> where, where where am I going to get that? You know, I mean, like legitimately, I've been in that situation literally two years. Uh-huh. And it it's rough. You you know, you end up with just really nasty code because yeah. you uncomment something after two years, it will not compile. Yep. Oh, no. Because everything's changed and you're like, I don't even know what I was doing here. I don't know if there's a piece over here that's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I don't have to be two years. It could be two months. Be a few hours. Yeah. Especially if you're jumping around like this. Yeah. The code base tends to end up full of short-term hacks as a result because the developers, they just can't make big changes. They can't take the time. And um, I would say that this sort of environment, um, an unusually high percentage of the code is best characterized as panic-driven development. Yeah. And so there's a few ways you can go about fixing this. Uh, the first thing is this is a management issue, which generally means that you can't fix it unless you're in management. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, you can make you can have influence, right? However, at a development level, you can make it a lot less painful if you have a good source control strategy. So like you're using Git, you make a feature branch for the thing. You don't merge it back up into dev until it's ready. And that way, if you get pulled, I wish we had done this where I work. We've uh, We've got some complications for branching that make mm-hmm. it because we've got a lot of database stuff. Yeah. And so branching doesn't work very easily for us. And so we get hit by this a lot and we're, we're kind of looking at like feature flag type stuff because of that. Um, and we've got a huge project that like somebody built a monolith with like, I think we've got like 40 something projects in visual studio that open up in that solution. And so mm-hmm. like you do a branch, you're going to go do something else for a while. And it's, it's just rough at the end of the day. You really, you know, that, the disciplined source control strategy will help, but the management aspects of this thing are not easily fixed. Sometimes that means you're, you're better off leaving and letting the market do it. Um, that's not the path I chose on what I'm doing because I got to the point where I had some influence and was able to start wielding it and we're gradually yeah. getting there. That's awesome. Yeah. So the next one is the overly involved tech manager. And this occurs when you get a manager who... Maybe it was a developer a long time ago, and they often have opinions that don't quite match reality. Yeah, and you will see this a ton with people that develop desktop applications in the early 2000s and before um, when they talk about how web applications should work. You know, they don't understand the whole stateless thing. They don't understand the security implications. Like you're out in the open web, you're swimming in the pond at the mm-hmm. water department, not in the pool at the country club. So... This is one of the things I really liked about my previous director is she had been a developer. Like when she started, she was writing COBOL. Yeah. And so she knew a lot of the development ideas and she could call us out on a lot of BS when it's like, no, that that is possible. I know you can do it. It may just be hard. Yeah. But I know you can do it. But one of the things that I really liked about having her as a manager is that she would listen to the developers. Like, she would let us explain ourselves and she would believe us. Like, she trusted our opinions. Right. Versus somebody that goes, oh, it used to be this way in 1995. Let me tell you how you're going to do it in 2018. It's like the security landscape is not the same. What the browser can do and what it can't do. You know, it's not the same. It's a different world. Yeah. I mean, just like OS level stuff even has changed tremendously. 
You'll see stuff. I mean, I, I worked at, at one company where somebody tried to roll their own encryption algorithm because it's easy, right? Yeah. It was just as good as you think. <laughs> um, I'm sure, actually, you know, considering what business they were in, that and this is, you know, this was a very short contract, so it's not on my resume. So don't go looking there. But I'm pretty sure they've been nailed by HIPAA by now. Things these sorts of managers often try to override the way that most developers. Um, in a particular language, actually use the language. And this can be especially amusing when you show them how the this keyword works in JavaScript. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, and they realize that the language itself doesn't work like they thought it should or would. It's even more fun when they used it regularly for years. And still didn't know that. Because, I mean, like all the stuff, all the weird things with the this keyword, I don't know, 10 years ago? Maybe was when I started running into that, you know, yeah. and I'd been doing, you know, JavaScript on web pages before that, but you just didn't, weren't doing anything complicated enough where it mattered. And and so you'll run into these managers and they want to try to hammer things into this old paradigm of, of the way they do stuff. You'll um like I've seen plenty of them, too, where they'll say, oh, you're using, you know, in Hibernate, for instance, you know, you've got an ORM and they're like, well, you need to call everything through stored procs and do it this way and. You know, it's like, look, it doesn't work well with that. The tooling is is not there. It can be done and you can do okay at it, but it's not built for that. Yeah. And it's, I've run into the opposite problem where it would have been better to have it in a stored proc. Oh yeah. And because it was, it was data logic. It was a search logic on a database Yep. and I'm wanting to put it into that. And I was told, oh no, we use an ORM and we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, we don't, I've we had don't that build plenty that of times anymore. in the past. We've uh, we've gotten past that now. Um, so we kind of have we're working towards the light ORM and you know stored procs for all the data stuff because we got a lot of data. Yeah. But yeah, you get an overly involved tech manager, and the other thing too is a lot of times you will get somebody that was a good developer and they got promoted up and they've got really strong opinions, but they're not able to actually train the team. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other thing I've seen a lot. Now, there's a few ways to fix this. Uh, the first thing is you've got to start out by being able to show actual results. Um, even with the crappy and ignorant way that they're trying to force you to work, you still have to be able to show results. If you do show outsized results and your opinion starts to gain more weight, then you can actually talk about what's going on and go, hey, we could do this easier. Mm-hmm. With that done, start fixing things quietly under the hood. Don't ask permission for small refactorings that make the system work better. So I have a little story on this one. I wrote a service that another developer came in and the idea was she was to extend the service and ended up like making it not testable and just not following the patterns that I'd put into it. Yeah. Uh, And so when I had to go in and one of the things that she broke, like she wasn't using that functionality. Nobody was at the time. I built it into the service so that when we came across the need for it, knowing that we would, it was already there. Yeah. Uh, and then when I tried to use it, it had been broken by what she'd done. So fixing that would take me about an hour. Fixing the other things that she had done, like not following the dependency injection patterns that I put in there and not having interfaces for things, stuff like that, took me about another five, ten minutes. Like it was that easy to make the fix. I don't know why the patterns weren't followed other than lack of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, but well, it still saved her five or 10 minutes. Yeah. But I didn't say anything about making those changes. And so my architect who listens to this is probably finding out about that now. But <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and I made a, you know, I've, I've done a lot of this in the system that we have. Um, and I don't ask permission because yeah. I'm a well-paid professional. Presumably you trust me to make these changes. Like, mm-hmm. can you imagine how you would feel if you went to a doctor? Everything that they, every little diagnostic thing that they did, they checked with you. Is that okay? Yeah. What do you think? You know, can I, can I take your blood pressure? Cause we need to know this because, and they try to justify it. You're like, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Don't do that. Now, you also need to try and take some time to show them how things actually work now. So like the dependency injection thing, right? That's, that's a head fake for like old school object oriented programmers that, you know, from back in the day, they're like, I don't understand what the point of this is. And then you can show them, Hey, here's what I can do with a mock and I can mm-hmm. test. Well, the thing with, with DI, and we, we talked about this in our inversion of control episode is it's kind of backwards thinking a little bit, yeah. especially cause like when I, it's first, like TDD. Yeah. The same it thing. Is. When I first started, learning development in high school, it was object oriented, was the new hotness. It was the the big thing on the block. And so like I remember learning C and and all that. And then when I started relearning it, it was very object oriented. Um, I've moved on to more functional style of coding now, but it was very object oriented at the time. And so you you learn to think that way. And then you learn these patterns like test driven development, dependency injection, and you go, oh it is, it's using that object orientation, but it's using it in a different manner. You have to really understand OOP to be able to use these properly. Right. Or it's like switching to using Lambda functions or using expression trees. Oh, yeah. Like just going, like just trying to explain to somebody how link <laughs> you build up a query, but you're not actually executing <laughs> it until you enumerate it. Yeah. You know, because they think, oh, it's, it's querying the database. It's getting the whole thing back. It's like, no, it's, it's not until this is called. It's just a graph. It's a structure that says here's how the query is built like mm-hmm. when you get that through their head it's great but before then they think you're an idiot you remember when i was trying to understand lambda functions yeah and guys what will told me was you're not going to be able to to wrap your brain around them just do them until you figure them out yeah it's like just just know this, that uh, this makes this happen and keep doing it that way until one day it just clicks and that's that is exactly what happened yeah and that's the thing with these people is they haven't had the things that, that you've had that have made it click. Right. So you've got to get them there. They've, they've been out of it, so they haven't had that, that experience. So I guess we'll talk about the three uh, financial factors, and these will be a lot quicker. So the first financial factor is a budget cut. So budget cuts can really damage a software project in a big hurry. This often means fewer developers on the project, and frequently no provision is made for knowledge transfer. The other developer may not even be in the building anymore. This can also result in shortcuts being taken by the remaining developers as productivity expectations often don't change when the team shrinks. Yeah. And everybody's now aware that they can get canned. Exactly. So you don't want to be the slowest one. Budget cuts also tend to hit training budgets and budgets for purchasing software components, licenses, servers, and the like. Yeah. Which means that people try to hack things. Like they try to make their own grid control because... You know, we just need this little bit of functionality. It's like, yeah, but once somebody asks for sortable, draggable columns, you're in a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. People tend to try to work around these problems the best way they can, but this results in very nasty code trying to hack things into working. So if you don't have enough server licenses, for instance, um, I've seen situations where you go in and the server room, they've got the warning, you know, you, like you, you connect to the server on the monitor and they've got the warning up that, hey, this is not a licensed copy of Windows. And it's like, this is a, you know, I mean, I, I've actually seen that in a, you know, a server environment and, and you're like, they've got three racks full of servers in here and they're all doing that. Yeah. And, you know, that's, 
it's bad. Now that's been years ago because mm-hmm. they've now cracked down on that, you know, better. But back in the day, that was a thing. So the ways to fix this, honestly, it can be very challenging to fix. You know, you probably aren't in a position to be able to do much about your company's budget. Yeah. However, when you do go to management, you need to show them how an idea you're suggesting actually impacts the budget, either making money or saving money. And we've talked about this a lot in like how to think like your manager and just a a lot of the things that what they value is not the same as what a developer values. Yeah. And if you can express it in those terms, the fact that things are messed up, that actually gives you leverage. Mm-hmm. You know, when you can go, hey, yeah, we're we're short on budget, but here's how to make some more money or save some money. Now you have their attention. If you focus on doing this, you're more likely to get buy-in and more likely to get moved up into a position that helps you have that kind of influence. Yeah. Where you get to go to the, the meetings with the cool kids and talk about the finances. Right. You may also want to start looking for work elsewhere. Um, a lot of budget situations don't get better. So, you know, they're, they start spinning downhill. That causes more problems that cost more money. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just, the system collapses and that's it. In larger organizations, budget cuts mean different things. Yeah. Uh, and it could be that, you know, your department used a big chunk of their budget to get a specific training. Um, that happened to us doing the scrum training as we were all, as we were moving to scrum, all of us got really expensive scrum training. And so we didn't have a big budget for other types of training. And so, you know, there, there are some trade-offs and that might be something that's going on. So something that may appear as a budget cut, maybe, oh, Hey, we're actually just moving the budget over here. Yeah. And sometimes it's a cash flow thing too, right? Like they've mm-hmm. landed some big clients, like, a you know, you'll see clients, um, and some companies I've worked for, they'll they'll land a big client and they do a whole bunch of work for them up front. They get paid later, but right now they don't have any money. Yep. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's you know that's definitely a thing. So another thing that can cause problems is sudden team growth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a company will suddenly start being radically more profitable. I mean, this is I, I, this is the opposite of budget cuts, basically. This is when they land that big client. It's not dehydration. It's drinking out of the fire hose. Right. Um, If this happens, they're often tempted to hire a lot of people quickly because they just landed a huge client. Yeah. So they think they need warm bodies and they probably do. When you and I were doing some uh, consulting together, we talked to uh, one small startup that had just landed a really big client. And the reason they were talking to us is because they were wanting to ramp up. What they're doing. Yeah. And it was only going to be two of us on a team, I think, of what, seven? But yeah. I mean, I've seen companies around here. Uh, there's one company here in particular that will hire like a you know, large number of people. They'll hire like 30 people at once. And I don't know what they do to keep, you know, to do the knowledge transfer and all the stuff that has to happen because that, that's a lot bringing a new person on. Mm-hmm. The quick hiring can be an advantage over time, um, but in the early phases of these people's employment, it's hard to make sure that they're doing things up to standards. You know, because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of non-technical managers don't realize that, hey, there's a right way to do this stuff. And just because it works doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah, I've been discussing that with management and other developers where I work, where it's like, all right, you know, we're coming in and we're maintaining older code. And like, all right, management sees it as, hey, it's working. And we're looking at it going, yeah, but 
<laughs> but it's not testable and we don't know about the security and yeah. yeah it's doing things in an old way that we may not be able to find developers for and i think it's leaking memory yeah yeah there's there's all that and so we're like all right yes it works now but is it going to work in five years no yeah is it going to work tomorrow <laughs> we don't know no yeah it's not that bad but yeah, yeah. but i mean I, i've been there mm-hmm. um this can lead to a proliferation of coding styles in a project, along with a situation that is perfect for not having regular code reviews. Yeah, because you get too many people, and they're all green, and or not necessarily green. I mean, you can bring a bunch of senior devs in, and we're all going to have different styling. Like, on my team, I can look at code, and I can, go, I can tell who wrote it. Um, even the developers that aren't there anymore that I've never met, I know their code. Mm-hmm. Um, the newer developers are also going to have a lot of pressure put on them as far as their productivity. So they're incentivized to cut corners because, you know, they just started, hey, they hired 30 people. Guess what? They're okay with 29. So, you know, on that, that other point about uh, developers, the different styles, it's like I can tell the ones who learned Link before it had extension methods. Like the Yoda sequel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can tell a who wrote code based on the way they write their link. There's a previous developer uh, where I work, and I could look at his code, and I could not only tell it was him, but I could tell when he started arguing with his wife on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, to fix this, try to convince management to slow down the rate of hiring. Yeah, either that or make uh, developers highly sought after and hard to get, and that'll take care of itself, um, which is the situation right now, so hopefully that's better. Um, another thing is you got to keep the new developers sandboxed into a small portion of the application. This keeps them from churning the whole code base, and it lets you go, okay, I want to look at all the stuff they're doing, and it's right here in this corner. This is a really good time for them to go in and write unit tests. Yeah, right. Unit tests, uh, fix bugs, um, implement a small, relatively self-contained feature so that, you know, they they basically just need like a little garden to play in. Mm -hmm. And that's totally okay because that gets them used to the project, used to the workflow, used to figuring out who they got to talk to. They got to learn a lot of stuff when they start. Um, So this makes it easier on them too. Also, show them samples of what is expected and take time out for code reviews to make sure everyone is sticking to the standards. This assumes you have standards. Yeah. And this is one of the exciting things about where I work is because we've made this move towards the, you know, the web API, Angular front end, and now we're building standards around that. And I get to be part of this. I'm not coming into a team that already has existing standards. It's I get to come in and go, hey, this is the best way to do this based on this research. Yeah. Which, as you know, is all me. That is like the way I think I love that. And I don't know. Guys, I love my job. <laughs> yeah. See, I go in, you know, just about everywhere I've been, there's already been existing coding standards. And yeah. you can have some influence over those over time. But yeah, I've, I've been places where they were really anal retentive about stuff that I'm like, I just don't care that much about the variable naming on some of the stuff. But yeah. So the final thing that we're going to talk about as a cause of poor code quality is insufficient training. Sometimes a company will completely lack a training budget altogether. Um, Not only does this mean that lots of expert beginners are there, but it also means that good developers leave. Yeah, you get the Dead Sea effect doing this. Uh, Good developers leaving often results in chunks of code base that aren't well understood by all the other people there. And when less skilled developers have to fix it, they often break it in other ways. 
and this goes back to the situation I was talking about with the developer that came in and worked on um, a service that I had written where it was got to go in and make a quick change and add these things and add a search feature to it. And so instead of extending the repository that I had or even inheriting from it, this made a brand new one from scratch. Yep. Yeah. Made a brand new one from scratch. Didn't create an interface, just directly created it in the controller. I mean, it was, I looked at that and I go, you know, in five minutes, I can fix this and make it testable. Yeah, but if it had sat there for a year, yeah. it wouldn't be five minutes. Exactly. Because other things would have been done to it. It's like cleaning ketchup off of a plate. If you do it while it's still wet, it's okay. <laughs> when it's been sitting there a week. Yeah, you exactly. Know, you might as well just throw the plate away. Um, your good developers leave, right? Your bad developers are going to stick around because there's lots of places to hide. Mm -hmm. in this stuff and your mid-grade developers get desperate and start doing resume driven development yeah because they're wanting to become good developers yeah they either want to be good or they want to get out or mm -hmm. something well the thing is they want to get out but they don't because they're not at the higher level of quality they don't know not to do that in the code base right this is where your nine to five developers start to do resume driven development whereas your your high quality developers they're learning on their own outside of work because they're keeping up their skills. And they look at this at the mess and they go, I have options later. So to fix this, honestly, you really can't fix something without a training budget. You need to start advocating for it. Uh, this could mean just doing lunch and learns. Yeah. I led an open space session on lunch and learns. And one of the things we talked about was, all right, how do I get my employer to allow me to do this? And um, one of the guys said that the way he started it at his job was he just started doing it. He got a conference room and they just started watching videos and it was five or 10 developers. It was the, the high quality. I'm want to learn on my own developers that started coming. And then they were talking about the really cool stuff they were learning there. And it, it snowballed. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good way to do it. Also in the meantime, if you can't get a training budget right now, you can try to drag the rest of the team's skill level upward. You'll, learn a lot and you might help the situation. So when you see something that's bad, you don't go up to them and go, Hey, it's bad. Go, Hey, let me show you something. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times you can get people that are really you know, capable of being mentored and it's, it looks good on you and it actually helps yeah. the situation. Of course, the other option is you can leave. Yeah. Which is what a lot of the good developers do. Mm -hmm. So guys, messed up code happens in every code base. But for it to really be prevalent requires an ecosystem that makes it appear to be the best choice at the time. In order to try and fix busted code, you need to take some time to figure out how it got there. Not only will it make you more likely to succeed, but it can often help your career significantly. Well, that's about all we've got. But before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, um, you know, we talked about the ecosystem thing Uh Functional ways of dealing with the world are ecosystemic. You know, they're, they're systems. So are dysfunctional ones. So if you want to improve functional things or fix the dysfunctional things, a good starting point for the brainstorming is to try and figure out what the system was that produced that effect. Not, okay, did, you know, did Johnny, you know, drive his vehicle into a tree because he was drunk, but why did Johnny take a drink? You've got to step back on the problem, you know, keep asking why. Uh, this works on more than just development. 
I mean, if you look at a screwed up person and try to understand the system that produced them, it both makes it easier to deal with them and it will help you have an appropriate level of sympathy or empathy. Um, you know, it's the same thing that you tell people in relationships. Like there's not just one screwed up person in a screwed up relationship. There's two at a minimum. Uh, so if you look at the ecosystem, that's how you troubleshoot stuff. And that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.